You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church. We are located in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There you can also learn more about our congregation where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. Good morning. Today's scripture is Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. The message. Then he said, everything I told you while I was with you comes to this. All the things written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms have to be fulfilled. He went on to open their understanding of the word of God, showing them how to read their Bibles this way. He said, you can see now how it is written that the Messiah suffers, rises from the dead on the third day, and then a total life change through the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in his name to all nations. Starting from here, from Jerusalem, you're the first to hear and see it. You are the witnesses. What comes next is very important. I am sending what my father promised to you. So stay here in the city until he arrives, until you're equipped with power from on high. He then led them out of the city over to Bethany. Raising his hands, he blessed them. And while blessing them, took his leave, being carried up to heaven. And they were on their knees worshiping him. They returned to Jerusalem, bursting with joy. They spent all their time in the temple, praising God. Yes, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. When you hear this sermon, it'll be Sunday, May 24th, Aldersgate Sunday. And for us Methodists, this is a special day. It commemorates John Wesley's finding his faith and with that, the faith to inaugurate a new thing. I'm recording this this sermon on Thursday, May 21st, Ascension Thursday. Ascension Thursday comes 40 days after Easter and 10 days before Pentecost. As you heard in our scripture reading, Christ left his disciples with a charge to wait for the Holy Spirit and to spread the word, his word. We, my now Thursday and your now Sunday, are in social isolation. For most of the country in our state, that isolation is slowly ending. For us in Northern Virginia, it will last a while longer. We don't know, however, just how long it will last. In preparing the sermon, I was trying to figure out what it is that binds together John Wesley's Aldersgate experience and the ascension of our Lord and our present situation. And the answer is two things, waiting and change. For John Wesley, the wait was almost 15 years. In the spring of 1738, John Wesley was at the point of despair, at the point of stopping his ministry altogether. 
He'd sought a faith in Jesus Christ all of his adult life. A faith that said he was truly saved. But he couldn't get there. He lived in a constant fear of, of a sin that had not been confessed and so not forgiven. He lived in a constant fear of not being saved. His mission to the American colonies a few years earlier had ended a dismal failure. He had been sent uh, to southern Virginia, to the Charleston area, to proselytize, to mission, to the indigenous people. He didn't meet any. So instead, he became the pastor to the local people there. And it was so bad that he escaped on his ship back to England just a few hours before the sheriff coming to arrest him. On that voyage home, 1735, they had a terrible storm. And he realized just how afraid he was of dying, of being condemned. On the ship with him, there were some Moravian missionaries. The Moravians were a reformist group that had grown in Germany during the Reformation period. And he was stunned by their calmness. They gathered together. They prayed through the storm, but calmly. They sang hymns, totally unafraid of death. He introduced himself to these people, and as a result of what he saw, he went and studied with the Moravians in Germany for several years. He was still, however, looking for his faith. And he had been told, had read, that one's faith can come instantaneously. And he kept waiting for it. While he was back in England, he would be a pastor to prisoners. And he led a prisoner to Christ by preaching faith in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, even though he himself didn't have that faith. The prisoner was immediately converted, and John Wesley was astonished. He'd been struggling for years for faith, and he was a man transformed instantly by preaching, by him. John Wesley made a study of the New Testament after that and found to his astonishment that the longest recorded delay in salvation was three days. That's while the Apostle Paul waited for his eyes to open after being struck on the way to Damascus. The Moravians had assured him that their personal experience had been instantaneous. And John Wesley found himself crying out, Lord, help my unbelief. On the evening of May 24th in 1738, John Wesley reluctantly attended a Bible study in Aldersgate, a part of London. And this is from his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Apostle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through the faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. I began to pray with all my might for those who had, in a more especial manner, despitefully used me and persecuted me. I then testified openly to all there what I now first felt in my heart, 
But it was not long before the enemy suggested, this cannot be faith, for where is thy joy? Then I was taught that peace and victory over sin are essential to faith in the captain of our salvation. But that, as to the transports of joy that usually attend the beginning of it, especially in those who have mourned deeply, God sometimes giveth, sometimes withholdeth them according to the counsels of his own will. Thursday, May 25th. The moment I awakened, Jesus' Master was in my heart and in my mouth, and I found all my strength lay in keeping my eye fixed upon him and my soul waiting on him continually. Being again at St. Paul's in the afternoon, I could taste the good word of God in the anthem which began, My song shall be always of the loving kindness of the Lord. With my mouth will I ever be showing forth thy truth from one generation to another. Yet the enemy injected a fear. If thou dost believe, why is there not a more sensible change? I answered, yet not I, that I know not, but this I know. I have now peace with God. And I sin not today, and Jesus my Master has forbidden me to take thought for tomorrow. John Wesley was changed. My heart strangely warmed. Wonderful English understatement for his finding of faith. For the apostles, it was a three-year wait. Now, on losing their Lord for a second time, things are different. They've received instructions that they are now understand. They've been blessed, and they've been promised the Holy Spirit. And as the Scripture said, they returned to Jerusalem bursting with joy. They spent all their time in the temple praising God and waiting. They still had to wait. As it turns out, beyond the three years of following Jesus, they had to wait another ten days. John Wesley waited alone in his faith, and the apostles, they waited together, first in journeying with Jesus, and then 120 of them to gather in one place in the upper room, waiting for their faith. We are in a strange place somewhere between these two. On one hand, we cannot be together like the apostles were in the upper room. Could not do it because of public requirements, not to mention due regard for our own health and the health of each one of us. On the other hand, we're not alone either. As you're hearing and seeing this sermon demonstrates, we can and do remain in contact with each other. As Viva Hammer puts it in a recent article, we are in this time alone together. And our waiting is both the same and different than John Wesley's or the Apostles. It's the same in that, like us, neither John Wesley nor the Apostles and disciples knew just how long that wait would be. Our time, though, is different in what we are waiting for. John Wesley knew precisely what he was waiting for, what he was yearning for, and that was the gift of faith. The apostles and disciples, too, knew what they were waiting for. They were waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We were suspended in time. And in a real sense, with this virus that attacks our lungs, we're holding our breath and waiting waiting. There's a word for this space and time that we're living in now. It's called a liminal space. 
Liminal space is where we stand between two places in our lives, a foot in either and a foot in neither. As Richard Rohr puts it, it's the space we're in having left one room or stage of life, but not yet entered the next. Liminal space is a way of describing that moment in time when we're between changes. A physical example, if you take a rock, you throw it up in the air, and just before it comes down, at that moment, it's absolutely motionless. It's neither going up nor coming down. It is still. At the very moment it's to change, it is still. This for us in life is a liminal space that we're in now. It is, as the Indian novelist um, Arunda Roy calls it, the pandemic is a portal. Being in liminal space, being in this portal, does not mean that we're standing physically still or doing nothing. Looking back, for me in my stages of life, in the different schools I attended, I was in a liminal space. Certainly true for me in going to law school and in going to seminary. For those of you who are in the military service, it may well have been a liminal space for you. I'm told that carrying a child to birth puts a woman in a liminal space. And I can tell you as the father of three that the family preparing for that child to come is to be in a liminal space. What brings all of our different experiences together, you can add your own, is that we go through a time of waiting and in the end we come to a deep change. Scripture teaches us that God's people Wait for change. Israel waited 400 years in slavery before their exodus to freedom and to God's new covenant at Sinai. Israel spent another 40 years in the desert, wandering, waiting for the promised land. The Jewish people spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity, waiting to return to rebuild their worship. The apostles spent the three years with Jesus, waiting for an apocalypse that came, but in a totally unexpected way. Paul spent over two years in a Roman prison, waiting for an uncertain end, but with a certain salvation. What are we waiting for? Let me suggest that if you're waiting for things to get back to normal, you're wasting your time. We, each one of us, will come out of this time changed. And whether we like it or not, we will be changed as the world around us has been changed. Here's how I've been changed. I come out of this time with a deep learning. I've learned to take better care of what's entrusted to me. I've learned not to be so wasteful, to be more frugal with food and with those things that make my life comfortable. I've learned what's important for my life, to find value in mundane and commonplace things I never thought even to value or look at. Things like cleaning materials, toilet paper, food, my mail. I've learned that I'm powerless over things that are important for me and my life and my well-being. That there are things that I just cannot do even for myself, that I'm not allowed to do, that I couldn't do if I wanted to, 
and that I never thought about doing. I will have learned who is important in my life and just how much I depend on others. I can now see very clearly those people whom Pope Francis calls our next-door saints. For a privileged white male in this society who's had authority over others, who's been very comfortable and blessed in his life, these are very hard learnings. I will never again look at the mail in my mailbox in the same way. I will never again look at the grocery store clerk who stocks shelves or checks me out in the same way. And I will never again fail to notice the UPS or the FedEx or the Amazon or the Uber driver. I will never again take for granted the unseen people on who I know now work so hard and have sacrificed their health to keep me fed and safe and comfortable. I've learned that in this time, while our next door saints are in the heroes, I am not a hero. B.D. McClay described me in a recent Commonwealth article and maybe described you as well. They are not doctors, delivery workers, grocery store cashiers. What they're being asked to do is small and humiliating. Stay inside, give money where you can, figure out a safe way to be there for your neighbors, wear a mask. Try not to put strain on the supply lines, tip heavily on delivered food, pray. There's no heroism in this, but it's what you can do. And there are other things that have been changed for me in this liminal time. I will no longer be buying packaged meat that was produced by corporate executives who got federal protection so they could make money by risking the health and lives of their workers instead of risking themselves. I will now be on the lookout for those other pirates of the human spirit and human life who claim to be doing good when they're actually, literally, killing people. I've learned, too, not to take anyone's presence for granted. Some of us have, in this time, suddenly lost dear friends of many years. Some of us have suddenly lost mothers and fathers. Some of us have lost siblings. And these losses are compounded by the fact that those suffering this loss could not, cannot, be with their loved one, cannot hold them, be with them in their last moments. With all of this, I have learned that somehow, some way, we, as the body of Christ, will have learned to live in love and hope and faith and to act with that love and hope and faith for a just world in a new, changed world. Pope Francis describes our new world as one where we can be, by noticing these things, changed in love. These are his words. The Lord does not leave his miracles half finished. If we become aware of this miracle of the next door saints, if we can follow their tracks, the miracle will end well for the good of all. God doesn't leave things halfway. We're the ones who do that. That's a wonderful thought, but it's we humans who leave things halfway. I pray that this miracle, this time we've had to wait, will end well. I want to end with the prayer of another person who waited and was changed and wanted a miracle half begun to end well. He waited a lifetime for a son and for the Messiah. It's the prayer of Zechariah for his son, John the Baptist. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abram to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender of mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the ways of peace. Like Zechariah, we have been redeemed. We who sit in a darkness and in the shadow of a death have a guide in the risen Savior. May he guide you and me to a miracle that ends well. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will indeed break upon us. And that indeed it will give us light to those of us who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Amen.